Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Please view our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. Let's begin in prayer, and then Kelsey, I'll hand it over to you to introduce our speaker this evening. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us. Cleanse us of all stain and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Kelsey? Our speaker this evening is a professor of literature and writer-in-residence at Magdalen College of the Liberal Arts. Dr. Anthony Eslin is a senior editor at Chronicles Magazine and Touchstone, a journal of mere Christianity, and his work appears regularly in Magnificat, Public Discourse, First Things, Crisis, Catholic World Report, and The Catholic Thing, among many others. Known for his three-volume verse translation of the modern library edition of Dante's Divine Comedy, Professor Eslin has also written verse translations of Torquato Tasso's epic poem, Jerusalem Delivered, and of Lucretius's On the Nature of Things. He is the author of, at last count, 25 books, including his own book-length sacred poem, The Hundredfold, Songs for the Lord a series of 100 lyric poems and dramatic monologues interspersed with two dozen of his own beautifully written hymns. He is the recipient of last year's Searcy Institute Russell Kirk Paideia Prize, given in honor of a lifetime dedicated to the cultivation of wisdom and virtue. And it is a great honor to welcome back to the Institute, Dr. Anthony Esselin. Welcome, doctor. Good to have you with us. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Kelsey. And thanks, everybody who's here. I see that some of you are where there's still daylight out there. Here we are in the East Coast. It's getting dark. Anybody here from New Jersey, by the way? I don't see anybody laughing at that. Um, I am going to tell you that your state motto does come from Dante, whether you don't know it or not. We, we'll get to there in a second. You probably... New York, yes, I'm from New Jersey. Well, I'll tell you right now, the, the, the state motto is Lasciate ogni speranza voi entrate. It's what greets you as you cross the Delaware River from Pennsylvania into New Jersey. It's from Dante. It's from Canto Three of Inferno. It says, abandon all hope, you who enter here. Welcome to New Jersey, the garden state abandoned. Well, anyway, maybe if you live in Missouri, Arkansas performs the function of New Jersey for, for us here. I have heard people in recent years say that physicists want to come up with a so-called theory of everything, right? The, the theory of everything, whatever it may be, isn't a theory of very much, as it turns out. It's a theory that would unite various of well, all of the known forces, the elemental forces in the universe, a theory of time and space and matter and quantum physics and and the strong nuclear force and the weak nuclear force, et cetera. But if you say to them, okay, well, this theory of everything, does it tell human beings how they are to live? Oh, no, no, it doesn't do that. 
does it tell us what it means to have a human intellect? No, it doesn't. Does it tell us what we ought to love? No, it doesn't do that. How we are to gather together in communities because man is not made to be alone. Man is meant to live in community. No, it doesn't do that either. Does it tell us about why there are such things as animals and plants and, and human beings? No. Does it tell us about what is beautiful and, and true and good in art, music? No. Does, does it have anything to say about human history? No, no, not really. What, what, what is this theory of everything? It's mainly, uh, mainly a theory of some, some physical attributes of matter some things about the physical universe and it happily and conveniently ignores everything that would be of any importance in human life. All right. This kind of thinking that, you know, only talking about matter that that's real knowledge here, but talking about the other things, what human beings ought to love of what human being is that eh, that's not real science. That's not real knowledge. That whole attitude is completely foreign to the Middle Ages. When they wanted something about everything, they meant everything, okay? They, and they not only meant something that would touch upon everything, and I grant the physicists these days when they talk about a theory of everything, they are talking, the few things that they do talk about, they do want to talk about them as interconnected, all right? The theory of everything in the Middle Ages has everything in the universe, Every physical thing in the universe, every intellectual and spiritual thing in the universe, as I'm going to give you three characteristics of everything in, in, in the Middle Ages, right? And that this vision animates Dante in his poem. Everything has an end. That is, it has a state of perfection to which it is growing, which it longs for, so to speak, which it is made for, has been created for. Everything has an end. Everything has a meaning, okay, uh, so that you you don't simply ask in the Middle Ages, well, you know, what's a pelican? Well, a pelican is a bird. It feeds on fish. It feeds its young from its mouth. You also say, well, why did God make pelicans? And one of the reasons he made pelicans was, as Catholics might know, to be a symbol of Christ, because uh, it was believed that pelicans fed their young from their own body. And that's why Thomas Aquinas, for whom Dante wrote this poem, they didn't know each other. Thomas died in 1276. Dante was a one-year-old boy when that happened. But in honor of Thomas, Thomas is all over the place in the poem here. In Thomas Aquinas, in his poem about the body and blood of Christ, uh, this great Corpus Christi poem, calls Jesus Pie Pelicane, merciful or pious pelican, Jesus the Lord, right? One drop of your blood would be enough to save the entire human race and cleanse it of all sin, right? Uh, so everything has everything has an end, a purpose for which it was made. Everything has a meaning, and all things are interconnected, okay? It isn't just you over here with this bunch of desires that you happen to have, and you over there with a bunch of other desires you happen to have, eh, you know, maybe we can get along, so to speak, but uh, we really don't have anything to do with each other. Whatever floats your boat. Now that's, that kind of thinking is completely foreign to the Middle Ages. Everything is meant to be conceived because it was created by God. As such, everything is meant to be conceived as having to do with everything else, as being part of the created world God made so that we could see some things about him 
see the, to quote St. Paul, the invisible things of the creator can be read in part by the visible things of his creation. Okay. Um, how do you write a poem that's about everything? You might as well ask Thomas Aquinas, how do you write the Summa Theologica, which is also about everything? Or ask those illiterate stonemasons and glaciers and painters and sculptors how you construct a building that is about everything because that's what they did when they made a medieval cathedral. We have no building that is like that now, right? And we have no poem that is like this now, and we have no works of the intellect that are like what Thomas doing, right? None, okay? We have to go to this uh, high point of human culture to find it. So I'm going to start with a, just, a, just to show you a little, little, little bit of what I mean by this. I'm just going to quote a couple of the first lines. You don't have them there in your handout because mainly I'm going to talk about love tonight, but just a little touch here uh, about how amazing and unbelievably subtle and intricate. And I mean, you can study this poem for 50 years. You still are like a kid at the edge of the sea, dipping his toes in the water and finding more and more. There's always more to find. The poem simply begins like this. In Italian, nel mezzo del cammino di nostra vita mi ritrovai per una selva oscura che la diritta via era smarita. Midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself in a dark wilderness, for I had wandered from the straight and true. And with that first line, okay, now no artist thinks like this now, okay? With that first line, nel mezzo del cammino di nostra vita, he's, al he's alluding to, he's echoing. A verse from scripture in Latin, in dimidio deorum meorum bottom ad portas in three. In the midst of my days, I went down to the gates of hell. Okay. And he expects, Dante expects his, you know, sharper readers, right, to know exactly where that comes from and know why he's chosen it. All right. He's chosen it for about 10 reasons at once. Because these, that's what these guys did. Johann Sebastian Bach is the same way in music. Same way in, in playwriting as Shakespeare, okay? You ask why they did that, there's, there's going to be 10 reasons. There's never no reason, okay? That's from the so-called Canticle of Hezekiah in the book of Isaiah. Hezekiah was told that he was going to die right away. And he prayed to God that he might be given a longer life. And this is his canticle. I said, in the middle of my days, in the midst of my days, I went down to the gates of hell, to the netherworld. Inferi means netherworld, right? Hell. And his prayer, and this is very important for Dante. We will actually see Hezekiah in paradise. And this very moment will be mentioned. The prayer is granted in the shadow of the sundial retreats. And he has granted 15 more years. Okay. That piece of scripture is read or chanted. Okay. In the office of the dead, as Dante well knew. Okay. Lauds for the office of the dead. I believe it's Lauds, maybe Matins. And it's also read, uh, sorry, it's Matins for the office of the dead. It's Lauds for the old Holy Saturday services, okay? So there it is. It's 
And now Dante, we don't know yet, but he's setting this poem in the context of the Easter Triduum. Right? This poem is moving in that context. It begins on the day that would be Good Friday. It takes him a while to go through hell so that when we see him at the beginning of purgatory, it is Sunday morning, the Easter of that year, 1300, when this journey was supposed to have happened. Okay. Now, in the middle of the journey of our life, it's, it's very interesting. Okay, so, all right, we got that from Hezekiah, and we got that, that it's going to be part of the Holy Saturday service. So we are talking also about the death of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ, that makes it possible for us to live again. Sure, we get that. But there's more. There's always more, in just in this little bit, okay? He doesn't say, in the middle of my days, I went down to the gates of hell. He says, in the middle of the journey of our life. And with that one word, journey, it's the Italian word, camino, okay? Camino in Spanish means the same thing. It's a journey on foot. It's a pilgrimage. And that he picks up from the ancient Christians, also from scripture, that our life has an end to it, not just a death, but we're going somewhere, right? We're supposed to be on pilgrimage to that true and eternal city, called Jerusalem, not the one in the Holy Land that is just a figure of it, but the, the true Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem that St. John saw coming out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. So it was in the middle of that journey. And in fact, when this poem is supposed to be occurring, the year 1300, Dante is 35 years old. And that's exactly in the center of the three score and 10 years that scripture says granted to human beings, right? Three score and 10, boom, right in the middle, 35, year 1300. So it's in right in the middle of his journey. But he doesn't say my journey, he says our journey. And that means that it applies to everybody, both individually and all together. In other words, this is going to be a poem, not just about a character named Dante, written by a poet named Dante, a personal poem. This is a poem about every single human being who ever lived individually and about all human beings together. In all their cities, in all of human history, the pagans, what do we make of them? The Christians, what do we make of them? Right? It's about our pilgrimage, the pilgrimage of our life. And he says, I found myself in a dark place, in a dark woods, in a dark wilderness, not in a city, but in una selva, a savage place, because I had lost the right way. The way of truth was lost. Que la via, the way that leads straight. I'd wandered. And there we hear echoed the words of Jesus. Do not go along the broad way. That leads to perdition. Many are those that go down, but hold to the straight that is the, so the narrow way, straight and narrow is the way that leads to salvation, okay? He had wandered from it. And that means that he's going to have to be dealt with. And it takes an extraordinary act of the grace of God to uh, help Dante out here, okay? But the poem is constructed of three main parts. The first, he's, he journeys through hell. In the second, he makes his way up a mountain, which is purgatory, and by the way, the mountain, see how everything has to be in its right place, right? The mountain is on the earth, not under the earth. 
And it's not low carbohydrate hell. It is a blessed place. And there is real joy in the midst of the suffering of the souls in purgatory. It is a mountain open to the sky and you climb it. Okay. And you recover what human nature was supposed to have been before the fall. Right. And it is on the globe surrounded by water on an island exactly opposite to Mount Calvary in latitude and longitude, okay? The Calvary is the mountain over here that makes possible the mountain over there. And no nonsense here about everybody thinking that the world was flat. Everyone knew it was round. Dopes knew that it was round, okay? So that's all nonsense. Every portrayal of the world in all iconography and all Christian art and sculpture, oh, they all have it as round. Okay. Why is the king, the sculpted king, holding a ball in his hand? It represents temporal authority because the world is round. Okay. Anyway, exactly opposite the globe, right? So he's going to go on this pilgrimage because he's lost and he needs to be saved. The pilgrimage is very unusual in this regard, right? I mean, nobody goes down to hell. Um, supposedly in one city, I think it was Verona, after he had been exiled from Florence and the first canticle of the divine comedy was published the inferno little boys would make fun of him as when they saw him on the streets and they run after him saying look at the man who went to hell <laughs> boys are boys wherever we find him i'd have done that too if i was a kid anyway he's got to go down to in this first part with poet virgil and that's not accidental though i don't want to get into it there's a thousand reasons why virgil has to be the guide okay it's very unusually we don't expect it we expect it to be saint but it's Virgil, and there's reasons for that. He's got to go down with Virgil to see the souls who have lost everything, okay? He's got to learn about. And in Canto Two of the Inferno, if you go to that, that quickly, we find him getting cold feet because he remembers what Virgil himself wrote in the Aeneid, which Dante has basically memorized, okay? Virgil himself says, in the character of the Sibyl, saying to Aeneas, Aeneas son of the goddess, very easy it is to go down to the netherworld, and many are the ways that lead to it. Getting back out of it, that's where the work is, okay? So it's easy to go down there. The tough part is getting back out. And Dante is quite aware of this, and he begins to get cold feet. And he says to Virgil, I don't know about this, all right? Poet, I start, this is line 10. You who guide my steps, see to my strength, make sure it will suffice before you trust me to so hard a road. You tell of Silvius's father, that's Aeneas, who went down to the immortal world still in the flesh and with his flesh's senses all aware. But I know why he went down there, says Dante. This is part of God's providential plan. Because he was going to settle his people in Italy, they would found the city of Rome, and Rome was meant to be the center of the church, where St. Peter would have his chair. So I understand why it's appropriate that Aeneas would go down to the netherworld. Okay? And then there was St. Paul. St. Paul went. This he's picking up from the end of 2 Corinthians, where St. Paul says, I knew man 14 years ago, uh, whether it was in the flesh or not in the flesh, I know not, God knows. 
Yeah, but he was taken up into the third heaven, whether in the flesh or not in the flesh, I do not know, God knows. And he saw things that tongue cannot utter or mind conceive, all right? So Dante says, I, I know about Paul, okay? Line 28 on the next page there. Later, the chosen vessel also went to bring back comfort, strengthening the faith, which is the first step on salvation's way. And this too is part of God's providential plan, right? But what about me? I'm not Aeneas. I'm not St. Paul. Why should I be going down there? I think it would be crazy for me to go down. I think it would be foolish. It would be mad. And all these things, every little thing that I mention here has echoes in 50 other places in the Divine Comedy. I, I could talk for an hour about one line, okay? This business about being crazy, he's going to allude to it later on, all right? But now he says, I, you know, I think I better not do this. <laughs> uh, I'll, uh, I'll just stay in the dark woods. Uh, I, I better not do this, okay? Now, the odd thing here is that Dante purposely mentions Aeneas and St. Paul because he's going to play the part of both of those. That's how gutsy he is. He is concerned both with the so-called secular state and the church, all right, and their mutual relations. He does really want to preach the word of God as Paul did, and he does really want to be the poet who owes everything to the greatest of pagan poets and who supersedes him, not because of his own genius, but because he has truths that Virgil did not have, because Virgil was a pagan, okay? He wants to be both, and that's his signal to us when he says, I'm not either one. Okay, um, it's, it's also signaled to us, this poem is going to be about state and church and their mutual relations and God's providence in bringing about that Rome would be the center of the world, right? Now, Virgil is not having anything of it. He's saying, come on, you're being cowardly here, all right? This is just cowardice, okay? So uh, Virgil says, uh, I got to persuade you. Okay, what made me come to see you in that dark woods, get you out of there, and propose this strange journey that we're going to go on? Now, here, you might very well expect that Virgil, being the voice of human reason, will rely, for his uh, persuasion of Dante, will rely on arguments. He might say something simple like this. Look, Dante, you're totally lost in that dark wilderness. You're not getting out of there. You're going to die there. What do you got to lose? Okay, but he doesn't say that. Instead, he tells a love story such as he, Virgil himself, would never have written because that's not part of the Greco-Roman heritage. Not at all. It's part of the medieval heritage. That's where we get our tradition of Western love songs from, by the way, a tradition that's pretty much sputtered out in the last 20, 30 years. It was 800 years long and had a great run and the sexual revolution killed it. But he's, he's telling a love story. In other words, this is going to be a poem about both the intellect and the will, right? And love is at the center of everything, including Inferno, right? He tells a story. So page 17. I was among the souls in limbo 
When so lovely and blessed the lady called me, I asked her for the grace of a command. Before this woman, who is going to be Beatrice, Dante's boyhood love, whom he hardly ever spoke to and probably never touched, okay, certainly never kissed, right? She died young. She married young. She died young. She married a banker. Go figure. But she is, for Dante, a saint in human flesh, even while she's just a little girl. And Virgil, this pagan, in a part of hell where they don't suffer any punishments, except that they have no hope. This pagan, before she even says why she's there, asks her to give him a command, okay? Her eyes were flashing brighter than the stars, and she addressed me with an angel's voice, sweetly and softly in such words as these, O anima cortese mantoana. O kind and gracious soul of Mantua, O courtly soul of Mantua. Since Virgil is now in the position of a courtly lover. O anima cortese mantoana. So it's a beautiful line. Whom the world still renowns and ever shall, whose fame will last as long as earth endures. I've got a friend down there, and he's lost. He was trying to climb up the hill that leads to life, and he, he's fallen away from it. He's wandering in the darkness, and I'm afraid that I'm too late to come to his help. Go, you go then, and with the beauty of your words and any skill you have to set him free, that business about being set free is crucial for the whole poem, okay? As it's crucial for the story of salvation, right? The story of salvation is a story of coming to life from the dead and being set free from the prison of sin. Any skill you have to set him free, help him that I may be consoled. I am the blessed Beatrice who bid you go. Love makes me speak and bade me hasten from the place that stirs my longing to return. When I shall stand before my Lord, I vow often to speak to him in praise of you. She promises to speak in praise of pagan Virgil before God Almighty. Love has moved me, okay? Virgil's amazed by this. He's stunned. He says, why aren't you afraid to be here? He says, no, no, not. I am in such form now by the grace of God. None of the fires of hell can trouble me. This is what happened. And if you go to page 19, we find that in fact, what's being described is not just an emotion that one soul feels for another soul. Oh, that boy Dante who was always mooning after me. He's in trouble. I'll think I send the poet down for him. It's not like that. Everything is like an intricate web of relationships and hierarchical relationships too. A gentle lady in heaven, a courtly lady in heaven, was so moved with pity for that soul whose way is barred she broke the rigid sentence from Bob. Now, in Inferno, the names Maria and Cristo are never uttered and deliberately. They don't belong. So we refer to them in roundabout ways, okay, indirect ways. The gentle lady in heaven is Mary. She called to Lucy. So she calls to Santa Lucia, to whom Dante had a special sort of devotion. And Lucy is also the patron saint of eyesight, okay, which is crucial here too. 
Your faithful follower now has need of you. I give him over to your loving care. Lucy, the foe of every cruelty, arose and hastened to the place where I, this is Beatrice speaking, sat beside Rachel of the ancient days. So there's Beatrice sitting next to Rachel. So why Rachel? Why not Leah? Why not Deborah? Why not Miriam? Why not somebody else? Because Rachel, as everybody knows, was a figure of the contemplative life. Because Jacob fell in love with her beautiful eyes. But Leah had weak eyes. Leah, then, is a symbol of the active life. Rachel, the contemplative. They are sisters. We will meet them in purgatory in a dream that Dante has. Okay, So Beatrice is sitting next to Rachel, who is an emblem of contemplation, of vision. Okay. And Lucy pleads with Rachel, don't you see that fellow there who left the common crowd? He became a poet, a love poet such as never was. Don't you hear him weeping piteously? Do you not see the death he wrestles with upon the flood tide violent as the sea? And you think that on earth, people are only after what's good for them, right? Selfish. But Beatrice says, no man on earth was so quick to pursue his profit or to avoid his loss as I was. I got up and I came down here to you to beg you to go to my friend and to help him. And as she says this, her eyes are glistening with tears. And Virgil says, that made me all the readier to go. That's why I came here. Okay. In other words, we are being invited, we the readers, and Dante, Dante the Pilgrim, is being invited into relationships of love. Okay, This is a communion of love. It extends even so far as Virgil. That's remarkable. What that might imply about the salvation of Virgil, we, we're not going to get into tonight. Okay, But it's there. And Virgil says, and this has to be done in Italian here, this is on page 20 and 21. Mary went to Santa Lucia, who went to Beatrice, who was sitting next to Rachel, to make, to, to urge her to come to your help. She came to me, Virgil, greatest poet who ever lived. I don't say so, but you say so. And you're going to be hesitant now. Dunque, che è? Perché, perché restai? What is it then? Why stand here? Why delay? Why let such cowardice come take your heart? Why are you not a fire and bold and free? Seeing that three such ladies blessed in heaven care for your healing from their court above. And what I tell you holds forth so much good. And then Dante says, yeah, I know he's like a flower that's all shut up in the cold and the frost of night. When the sun rises and it gets warm, boom, the frost melts and it opens up. And I said, oh, lady of compassion and my help. And you, most gracious Cortese, you, courtly, who obeyed her wish soon as you heard the truth she spoke to. Your words have put my heart in order now, kindling so great a longing to set on. You've turned me to our first intention. Go, go, for we two now share one will alone. You are my guide, my teacher, and my lord. Tu duca, tu signore, tu maestro. You're my guide, you are my signore, my lord, and my maestro my master, my teacher, okay? And I said, and then we move.
And boom, as we begin Canto 3, there we are, Gates of Hell. Okay. Dante doesn't waste any time. He is the most terse of poets. There we are, right there. Just say, yeah, we went for a while and it was kind of gloomy and slowly I saw something that looked like, nope. Uh, once we get the words on the archway, the gate of hell, is to go to the beginning of Canto 3. I am the way into the city of woe. You know what? I used to tell my students, God in his mercy allows Italian to be spoken in hell, not German. It would be like uh, just too much, adding punishment to punishment, right? In Italian, even the inscription on the gates of hell sounds beautiful. Per me si va, doesn't sound like a love poem. Per me si va nella città dolente, which means I am the way into the city of woe. Per me si va nell'eterno dolore, I am the way into eternal pain. Per me si va tra la perduta gente, I am the way to go among the lost. Giustizia mosse il mio alto fattore, justice caused my high architect to move. Fece mi la divina potestate. Divine omnipotence created me. La somma sapiens, el primo amore. The highest wisdom and the primal love. Dinanzi a me non for cose create se non eterne, e io eterno duro. Before me there were no created things, but those that last forever. As do I. Lasciato mi speranza voi contrate. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Dante says, those are tough words. And Virgil says, I know they're tough. Put away all cowardice coming down here with me, okay? Uh, let us go to page 27. They gather at the shore of the river Acheron, one of the four rivers of hell. Come, come. He's picking this up from Greek and Roman poetry, Greek and Roman mythology, right? All these things are symbolic. You say, Dante, do you believe that there's a river Acheron right down there under your feet? He said, don't you understand how poetry works? But anyway, he sees a lot of souls gathering at the shores of this river. The river's kind of ugly, kind of swampy and miserable. And all at once, he sees coming at them in a boat, an old man. Okay. Old man is naked, grizzled, red eyes. And he's got a big, long pole that he uses to push the boat ahead, sticking it in the mud underneath the water, right? And look here, coming at us in a boat, an old man, hair and lank skin, white with age, hollering, Guavo, anime prave. Woe to you, crooked souls. The welcome wagon of hell. I used to tell my students, if I had to go to hell, and I could pick my job. This is the job I want, okay? Uh, this to say, who do you, depraved souls, literally crooked souls? Because man is meant, see how everything has to do with everything else. Why does man stand upright? Man stands upright so that he can do something that none of the other beasts do. Not even the birds that seem to navigate by the stars. They don't do this. They don't look up at the sky. Just to look at the sky. They don't do it. Okay, they don't wonder, they don't look up at the stars. Imagine never being able to look again upon the sky. Imagine the ceiling over your head. 
Non esperate mai vedere lo cielo. Give up all hope to look upon the sky. Cielo means sky and heaven, both. I come to lead you to the other shore into eternal darkness, fire and ice. And as for you there, you the living soul, get away from these others who are dead. And then Virgil has to give him what for, saying, Caron, shut up already. Quit grumbling. No questions. This is willed where power is power to do whatever it will. It's going to page 29. Now, thing about this business here is that when the souls hear this, okay, basically they just heard it said, it hasn't looked good for them, okay? They died, and now they're on the shore of a miserable river, you know? It doesn't look propitious, and all one, there's this naked old man coming at them in a boat, and then he has this to say, guaya boy, anime bravi, non sperate mai vere lo cielo. And what they do then shows the absolute inversion of love that happens when you give yourself over to evil, okay? Does not mean that you cease desiring things. Dante will be quite clear about this. He says that love, meaning desire, okay? Desire is the seedbed of every good thing we do and every evil thing we do, okay? To remember that when somebody says, well, love explains it. You know, desire, that is to say, love is the weight that throws us in the direction that we're going. And love is this, in this sense, love is neutral. Love is the seedbed of everything that we do, both the good and the evil. Okay. Love as charity, caritas, that, of course, is what God is. But desire? Anyway, they respond with a curse that is the absolute negation of everything. The proper response of a soul in grace to anything in creation, anything that God has made, the proper response is one of wonder and gratitude, how good it is that you exist, okay? This response of theirs is to say how evil it is that anything at all exists, all right? It's a nihilist response. But when they heard the old man's cruel words, those naked and exhausted souls turned white, gnashing their teeth with fury for their fate. Bestemiavano Dio e loro parenti, hurled blasphemy at God and at their parents, at the whole human race, the place, the time, the seed of their begetting and their birth. Then all these people, wailing bitterly, gathered upon the cursed riverbank, that awaits each man who does not fear the Lord. Charon the demon, eyes of fiery coal, signals them all to get into the boat, smacks with his oar the soul that lags behind. And one by one they get into that boat. And Dante says, it's so strange. Why do they all collect here at the river? Why did they seem in a perverse way eager to get into the boat? And Virgil responds that just as divine spurs them on, so what they fear turns into their desire. What we really are after here is, a, is quite a deep truth. Hell is what, in fact, they have desired. Okay. C.S. Lewis, I think, quoting George MacDonald, the fabulist, the writer of great fables, says that there are only two kinds of people, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done, all right? And in this sense, hell is the destination of these souls, 
because that's where they've aimed themselves. They have desired this. Of course, they've desired it perhaps in a phony form so they'd be tricked up with all kinds of things that might make it seem not so bad. This is what they've desired with all the frills taken away, what they've desired in fact, not fantasy. This is their love. Augustine said it, and Dante is working with that. My love is my weight. What I love is like a weight in me. Think of a pulley. It swings me towards what I desire. All right. Whatever I love, that is my gravity. Okay. Um, and if I love God, it swings me upward towards God. And if I love something that's not God, as if it were God, then it weighs me down. What I love, that's my gravitational force. All right. And my love is in my choice, okay? I was going to tell you also, you'll have to take my word for it here, that one of, one of the great influences of uh, Dante in the poem is a fellow named Richard of St. Victor, Benedictine mystic, who says that wherever you find love, there you find an eye to see, okay? That love opens up the vision, right? It's not simply true that you see something and because it's beautiful and true and good, you fall in love with it. It is also true that love enables you to see what you would otherwise not see, okay? And the souls that have given themselves over, or there's something other than God, experience, therefore, a darkening of the intellect, all right? As we go further and further down into hell, the souls often are uh, stupid, have sunk below uh, the level of human. They, they're not, mostly they are not beasts. So some have sunk to the level of beasts. Mostly they're like, they're human and they don't see what should be obvious for them to see. Or they've sunk even beneath the level of individuality so that they no longer even have names. Sin makes us stupid, okay? Because that is the nature of the universe that God has created, right? God is the omnipotent and all loving. To love a creature as if it were your God or to love yourself as if you were your own God is to be fundamentally stupid. Um, and no matter what your IQ is, in fact, sometimes you, the greater your IQ, the farther you can travel in stupidity and the more harm you can do to yourself and to others. But I was also going to say that love, now perhaps I'm talking about caritas and not amor, does not die. and. Here I go to Cano Two of Purgatory, okay? It's absolutely beautiful. Purgatory is much more like paradise than it is like hell. It has this in common with hell. Souls are punished. But otherwise, it has nothing in common with hell, okay? Every soul in Purgatory is going to be a saint. No exceptions. They are all in a state of grace. They can no longer commit a sin. And they're all characterized by love and longing and sorrow, that is, sorrow for their sins. And they're all together, too. Okay. Cano 2, we get another boat. Okay. This is on page 15, Cano 2 of Purgatory. They're at the base of the mountain of Purgatory, looking out at the sea in the early morning just before the dawn. In other words, this is around the same time, okay, that seems to be alluded to at the beginning of Inferno. 
Only the day now is not Friday. It is Sunday. It is Easter Sunday because this is resurrection. And they see light coming from this is not a naked old man with a punt, right? A big long stick that you shove into the mud to punt your boat along. Um, th this is traveling with speed across the ocean. I, in the moment when I turned my sight to ask my guide about it, glancing back, I saw it had grown greater and more bright. And then from either side, I caught a glow of something seeming white and gradually another gleam emerging from below. My teacher all the while spoke not a word as the two gleams at last appeared as wings. But when he recognized the pilot cried, now fold your hands in prayer, fall to your knees. Behold, it is the herald of the Lord. Now you will see such ministers as these. In other words, not Charon, okay? Not a little ragged boat over a swamp. This is the ship of faith across the ocean. See how he holds man's instruments and scorns. He doesn't need a pole. He needs no oars or any other sail but his own wings between such distant shores. See how he lifts his pennons to the pennons to the sky. Bears to cello, the cello that Charon said, never hope to see again. It's the first thing that Dante sees once he gets out of hell is the stars in the sky. Okay. He lifts his pennons to the sky. That's where he derives his strength from, heaven, okay? Sweeping the air with his eternal feathers, changeless, unlike the hair of those that die. And as that bird of heaven drew more near, my eyes could not endure the glorious sight. So bright and dazzling did he now appear. So down I cast them, and he neared the shore upon a skiff, so swift and sleek and light, it drew no water as it skimmed the sea. The heavenly pilot stood before the bow. Beatitude seemed written on his face. More than a hundred souls sat toward the prow. In exitu Israel de Egypto, when from the land of Egypt Israel came, they sang together in a single voice with all the verses written in that song. He blessed them with the signal of the cross. That's what he says to them. He doesn't say, He says, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And they all cast themselves upon the beach. And then he turned as swiftly as he had come. This is beautiful, okay? The souls are all together singing together. In hell, the proximity of another human being is almost always an irritation, a punishment, okay? One guy describes another guy they're encased in ice in the lowest reaches of hell. That one there whose head is in my way to block my sight. I'll tell you about him. He was a traitor too. Here, they're all together. And they're doing something together that secular man never does. They're singing praise to God. They're engaging in the highest form of song. And they're happy together. And they're singing the song that means so much. When from the land of Egypt, Israel came. It talks about the uh, children of Israel going from Egypt to the promised land through the Red Sea, led by Moses, and then finally by Jesus, that is to say Joshua, into the promised land. Okay, It prefigures, Dante says, the baptism of every Christian soul as we go through the waters of baptism to go from the Egypt of original sin into the promised land of the church. And it also prefigures, right, the coming of Jesus, 
who gives grace and truth. The law came from Moses, from Jesus we get grace and truth. And it prefigures all of our crossing, we hope, through the waters of death, right? The waters of baptism, the final baptism, which is the baptism of death, into the new Jerusalem, the true promised land. It's all there. That's what medieval man thought about that. And that was the psalm that you would chant, the cantor and the acolytes would chant as you brought the body from the church to the burial ground, when from the land of Egypt Israel came. And they're all singing that now. And they're all eager to go. They like each other. In fact, they're learning to love each other more and more. And indeed, Dante's going to recognize one of them. Actually, the one of them recognizes Dante. There's no, hey, you, you get going. You go move, move here. You belong here. You, you get along there. It's, the angel just leaves him at the shore and then he goes. And they see Dante and Virgil and they say, uh, um, where do we go from here? And Dante and Virgil say, we just got here too. Okay. It's like a meeting at a train. Oh, we don't know either. And one of them recognizes Dante and he comes up to give him a big hug. And Dante tries to give him a big hug because he's still a shade. There's not the resurrection of the body yet. The arms go through him three times, just as Aeneas tried to hug his father and Chises when he met him in the underworld in Virgil's poem. And that was a sad moment because he knew he would never touch his father again. But this is not a sad moment because Dante's friend Casella, he will have the body again. And so will Dante. There is the resurrection of the body. They will touch again. And it's a comic moment. And Dante says, you know, I've been through hell. Can you sing me one of the old songs? I wrote my poems, my love poems, when I was just a kid. And you set them to music. Can you sing one of them for me? And he sings, the love that speaks its reasons in my mind. Sings it so sweetly. Everybody's listening. Even Virgil, the pagan poet, is listening till they have to be shoot. Come on, come on, by Cato, the guardian of purgatory. Come on, move, 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 move it, move it. And they all run away like pigeons. It's another comic moment, not a moment of punishment. Even Virgil and Dante sort of scurry away. Virgil a bit embarrassed by that. This is love. And that love will triumph. They will touch. Those friends will grasp hands someday. Again. All right. How about that? Anyway, I mean, this is just a very brief and very inadequate introduction. Thank you so much, Dr. Eslin. Man, what a teaser. I wish that we were having you on for like 10 more sessions or. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's just, yeah. you, we could have a hundred. We could have, we could easily have a session on every single one of the hundred cantos. Mm-hmm. And it, it would not be too much. I'd still be saying, you know, there's so much more I could say. There's so much more to see here, but we have to be quick, you know. All right. So I think we have a number of questions that have come in. And yeah, I see one uh, first. I should be clear about this, right? The Divine Comedy, uh, actually, Dante just called it the comedy, la commedia. It's made up of three big parts. The first part is Inferno. The second part is Purgatorio. And the third part is Paradiso. So the Inferno is just the first third poem called La Commedia. Later generations added the adjective divine because they thought the poem was really good. But uh, Dante called it the comedy because, and you should read the Inferno first, right? It's, that happens first, and then we go to purgatory. It happens. Uh, you read it in succession. 
it's called comedy because in the Middle Ages, they had a rather straightforward, realistic view of what a comedy was and a tragedy. It was simply this. A comedy is when you start off, let's say, really at the bottom, where Dante is at the beginning of Inferno or, you know, New Jersey, and you end up on top. That's a comedy. It's a tragedy when you start up there and end up down there. Okay. It's a... <laughs> That's an e- it's an easy definition to grasp. So, yeah. So you start with Inferno. Okay. And I saw somebody who was recommending the book, The Bridge on the River Trina. I read that a long time ago. It's a phenomenal work. I need to read it again. The novel, The Bridge on the River Trina. I do just want to say there are a number of questions coming in about translations of oh, the wow. Divine Comedy. And I guess it wasn't clear enough in my intro, but... Dr. Eslin himself has a number. So I have those here. You can get those online. Yeah. And let me say, right, each each of the three, you come in three volumes, right? And that's an introduction to help you out. I did the other things for my students, my college freshmen. There's Italian on one side. So if you read a little Spanish, you can guess, you know, or French or Italian. English on the other. It's got glosses on the page to help you out with tough names and all that. It's got notes in the back with little brief introductions to every caddo. And it's got appendices that give you other works by contemporaries or sources of Dante. Thomas Aquinas, for instance, other poems by Dante, selections from Virgil to help you out, right? So everything's very easy to use, okay? And there were pictures, too. I didn't take the pictures. They're drawings by Gustave Doré. Thank you. Yes. So again... Three different volumes here, and it's Modern Library is the publisher, so you can find those. Yeah, Random House Modern Library, yeah. Adrian, do you want to go ahead and unmute yourself? Thank you. So I always wonder how to read literature, because my English degree didn't really help with that. Unbelievable. (laughs) You know, I I hear you. uh, So many people have told me that, oh, my gosh, especially when it comes to poetry, right? Well, so it's a lot of different things. So I'm just wondering, like, should we be reading Virgil before we read the Divine Comedy? Should we be reading, like, like should we be going back to Homer even before Virgil? Have you, have you read Virgil ever? No. 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 Uh, I include in Inferno large selections in, the, in one of the appendices, large selections from the part in the Aeneid where Aeneas goes down to the underworld. Okay. And he sees the punishments of the damned. That's in Appendix A in Inferno there. So, I mean, you know, it's there to be helpful. I would say, no, I mean, my gosh, what are you going to do? Of course, you should read all of Scripture. You should read the Aeneid and you should read Augustine's Confessions and you should read Thomas Aquinas' Summa. And by the time you are finished reading all of Dante's sources, you'll be 80 years old and you'll be, you know, you'll be forgetting your cat's name, <laughs> you know, so... I think I think the thing to do is just jump in and well, obviously let me be your guide. Uh, I did not write I did not write the apparatus in here for for scholars. I wrote them for my college freshman at college that will remain nameless, where I taught for twenty seven years, so, with them in mind and what they would need. So no, I'd go straight into Dante. Yeah, 
Thank you so much, Dr. Eslin. Speaking of guides, you mentioned it at the beginning. And one of the great things about Q&A is we can get into these other topics. So a, a couple of people are asking, could you explain at least a few reasons why Virgil was the guide? Yeah. Okay. So unlike us today, okay, the people of the Middle Ages honored their forebears, even when their intellectual and literary forebears were pagan. Okay. Uh, we see, we don't understand that at all, right? For Dante, okay, and for Thomas, for Thomas Aquinas, Aristotle, you don't even need to call him Aristotle. You just call him the philosopher, okay? Other philosophers you by name. Aristotle is so great, you just call him the philosopher. Averroes, the Islamic translator commentator on Aristotle, is simply called the commentator, okay? And everybody's supposed to know who he is. So, I mean, they revered them, okay? Now, what does that mean, though, if you are a Christian? And what you've got here is a great poem, okay? A great and wise and good poem, full of moral virtue. But the author is pagan. What do you make of that, okay? I mean, it's one of the big issues of the Divine Comedy is what is the final destination of virtuous pagans. And uh, Virgil stands in for us there as the epitome of the virtuous pagan. Dante goes so far as to place Virgil and other virtuous pagans who did not commit mortal sin in life. Believe it or not, they did not. He puts them in his version of limbo, which is the first circle of hell. There's no hope, but there's no punishment. And there's some light. And they talk. When they talk at all, they talk about things that they loved. Poetry, for instance, the poets talk about. It's a place where people are honored, even by God. What do we do with that? Well, Dante seems to have done this with that, at least. If you want someone to set your natural reason correct, where better to go than to the greatest of the ancient poets? whom Dante regarded also as a lover of wisdom, a philosopher, where but to him. That shows a remarkable reverence for and trust in natural human reason. I mean, forget about the scientists of our time, right? They have nothing close to that trust in human reason. They can tell you that human reason is very good at doing mathematics and doing particle physics, perhaps. But when it comes to determining what is good, what is evil, you know, they shrug, oh, it's just what you're taught, you know, it's one opinion is good as another, kind of, sort of. They have no answers, all right? But for a man of the Middle Ages like Dante, human reason is extraordinarily powerful. And though it can't of itself get you to know anything close to the full truth of God, it can still tell you some things about God, namely that he exists, that he's omnipotent and he's good. It can get you, so to speak, right to the threshold. But being at the threshold and being in paradise are quite different things, right? So that's why, okay? Virgil, Virgil becomes for us an emblem of everything that the human being is capable of in a human sense, with the natural light that God has granted to every human mind, okay? And it's still, 
it can do wonderful things and it's still not enough. And when we're talking about paradise, not enough might as well be nothing. But then again, it isn't nothing. So you will see when you read through purgatory. And there's a part in purgatory near the end of purgatory where if you don't put the book down and start weeping, then your heart must be made of stone. But I won't spoil it for you. That's why. Okay. And that doesn't even get to Dante's theories about the history of poetry and all that. That's a separate. That's also involved here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for that. I think we'll end with a question that I'm going to try to kind of bring together many questions that have come in. Okay. All have to do with essentially what could you say about Dante's theology in the book? Can we trust it? Was the medieval way of looking at the world consistent with Catholic teaching today? Or is there anything in the Divine Comedy that we should be wary of as far as things it might say about theology? He was more, not less apt to see a God-ordained distinction, more, not less apt than the people of his time, a God-ordained distinction between the temporal order and the spiritual order, okay? And that alone may be why in the Renaissance, some Protestant readers appreciated Dante because he attacked the corruption of the church furiously, and he seemed to believe in a sharp distinction, temporal order, spiritual order. However, he subordinates the temporal order to the spiritual order. But he does insist that when one tries to interfere with the other, you get all kinds of, you get chaos and injustice, right? But other than that, I do not think so, okay? He is more apt than we are right now to see human life as necessarily communal, right? There's no word for loneliness that I can find in Middle English. I don't think people experienced it. They were around too many people all the time, doing all kinds of things that you had to do together, right? Individualism, it's inconceivable. And I think there he, Dante, as Thomas does, and the medieval poets generally, have a lot to teach modern man about what a real community looks like. He is very clear about the relationship between sin and getting nature wrong. Nature for Dante is the child of God, okay? You could almost define sin in general as that which is in some fashion counter to nature, sometimes counter to nature because you pursue it too much, you drink too much, you eat too much, you, uh, or you pursue it in the wrong way, sometimes counter to nature in itself, okay? Such as the sins of the sodomites, which Dante places not in the circle of the lustful, but with the circle of the violent, namely the violent against God. They are most like blasphemers and usurers, anti-creators, okay, aiming their evil directly against the creative power of God. I mean, there I think Dante has much to teach us, much to teach us also about the, the genuine goodness of the created world. We tend to think of it as stuff to use, or we tend to go all gaga and gauzy over it. Oh, how wonderful it is. And really, there should only be a billion people in the world. Let's just kill ourselves off and we'll have more spiders then. Um, (laughs) uh, Now, Dante certainly believed that the whole created order was made for man. Man is meant to be God's viceroy. 
in charge of the entire created universe. However, that created universe is good in itself, and it has much to teach us, okay? And so there are you know, metaphors taken from nature all over the place. I mean, nature is to be honored, and not in a sentimental environmentalist kind of way, or pseudo-environmentalist sort of way, but, but theologically honored, how good it is that this natural world exists. So no, I don't, I think, I think he's, I think he's instructive. You know, Pope Leo XIII, the progenitor of modern Catholic social teaching, Pope Leo XIII was absolutely steeped in the habits of the Middle Ages and in the poetry of the Middle Ages, mm-hmm. right? He's not taking two steps in his social teachings without thinking about the world of the high Middle Ages that give rise to Thomas who he promoted as the doctor of the church that everybody ought to be studying now, and poetry, the incomparable Dante. So I hope that's a good answer. Yes, thank you so much for your answer and for uh, your time with us this evening, Dr. Eslin. That was just absolutely wonderful. Thank you all. God bless you all. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.